Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I'd like to welcome everyone to, uh, in the audience today, and thank you for taking time to be with us as we help public, private, and nonprofit organizations tackle important broadband issues, getting broadband everywhere it needs to be. <clears throat> now, love of money may be the root of all evil. But it is the need for money that is the root of many broadband discussions in America today and elsewhere. And uh, we have talked on this show in the past about this subject of raising money for broadband networks and have explored a number of options, including uh, starting co-ops and community foundations, um, selling stock in broadband networks, and so forth. Today we're going to look at crowdfunding, which is um, using the Internet to kick traditional fundraising into overdrive. Uh, it has been effectively used in other areas, um, particularly in the arts, and uh, I felt like you know now is a good time to talk about crowdfunding in the context of community broadband. So my guest today is Jace Wilson, who is the founder of the civic crowdfunding platform Neighbor.ly, and he knows a lot about the subject. And in fact, uh, at MIT, he earned his master's in city planning and authored a thesis on using web technologies for gig, uh, civic engagement. So he's here today to talk about crowdfunding as a tool for raising money to support broadband projects and how you, our listeners, can use this tool effectively. Jace, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for having us. And, uh, you know, we're definitely happy to have you here. And then I also found out in talking to Jace before the show started that Jace was part of the um, mayor's planning team there in Kansas City. So he has the perspective of this, this crowdfunding um, as it relates to broadband from the perspective of a city that already has, you know, Google building a network. But, uh, you know, and we'll talk a bit later about how uh, – his his service can uh, play a role, even though, you know, like I said, the network itself is being addressed. There are undoubtedly other projects, other expenses that could be uh, supported as well via the neighbor.ly uh, approach. So, Jace, give us a little bit of a, an overview of. Uh, let's start with with crowdfunding because you know people may or may not be aware of Kickstarter, and obviously you're not Kickstarter, but. They may have that as a point of reference, some may not. But let's get on with the, you know, what is crowdfunding, and then we'll talk about it in the context of what your company does. Sure, Craig. I think you pretty well nailed it uh, in your description by basically pointing out that it's uh, more or less traditional fundraising put into overdrive by the Internet. So it's a matter of uh, taking traditional ways of bringing money into an organization or a company and, and adding the Internet as more or less a, a catalyst for for bringing more of the fundraising and also to help spread the word farther through social media and so forth. And okay. it's um, pretty well understood at this point to work. I think Kickstarter and, and its cohorts have, have shown the world what's possible when you when you use it. So, and, and as far as it being a new... Uh, the word crowdfunding as being sort of a neologism for an age-old practice, I think the, the key ingredient there is the Internet. Hmm. So in um, in this concept of kicking uh, fundraising into overdrive, how exactly does a crowdfunding project 
work. In other words, I wake up one day, I decide, you know, oh, I want to raise some money for XYZ project. What what are the steps involved here? Well, uh, there are a number of crowdfunding platforms like Neighborly coming online for various uh, special interests and applications. So depending on you know what type of, of project you're hoping to raise funds for, you would need to probably first start off by selecting the right tool for the job. And then there's a, a model that was established of uh, by Kickstarter and, and its early cohorts that basically utilize uh, perks, um, the things that could be offered in exchange in order to entice contributions. And then there would be a deadline and then a, a goal. And it was for many years the case that the the model, the, the model of the biggest success was to have some perks, to have a timeline, and to have uh, a goal in mind and make it an all or none proposition. So you know, you're doing a project in your in in your art in your art studio and you wanna sell you wanna raise five thousand dollars for uh, a certain type of exhibit and you can make a few paintings for people that contribute over five hundred dollars. You can make a few prints for people who contribute fifty, uh, so on and so forth. Maybe for a thousand, they get to have dinner with you, or whatever it is. And then you would set a date, um, and if you raise the amount that you're looking for, the five grand by that date, if and only if that amount is raised, uh, you would get the whole amount. Mm -hmm. Now, now because it's so effective at, at raising money for various types of things. You know, there's no longer the case that that's the only model available. Now there are uh, other models, uh, including one that is just basically every dollar counts, which is, uh, I think, you know, as closely aligned with traditional fundraising as you get, that you take away that, that idea of uh, being all or none and you just put in, you know, perks that people can, or reasons for them to contribute. And there's maybe a, a symbolic goal and a symbolic deadline, but it's basically just open as long as it's open and every dollar that comes in is another dollar that you don't have to worry about. And that's sort of where Nate really said it is in a, a direction that allows the owner of a project to choose, you know, what model makes sense for them. And it could be an all or none or it could be an every dollar counts proposition. Okay. So uh, now... Well, there's, I guess there's a lot of questions, so it's almost hard to start to know where to start. Um, let's talk about um, civic crowdfunding. I mean, is that any right. different than Kickstarter, uh, either in principle or in execution? It is. There are subtle but important distinctions. Um, Kickstarter, you know, it's it's extraordinary. And what it does for artists and, and businesses that want to bring about uh, a new product to market, where you know at the end of the day, a lot of the cases there's something that the the project owner can give to contributors. Uh, for example, if you in the artist example, they are paintings at stake. Or if you look at some of the most successful Kickstarter campaigns, like uh, the Pebble Watch, for example, there's this really cool watch. Um, now, it's kind of different when it comes to, say, a city or a neighborhood or a civic-minded organization uh, where, you know, you you don't necessarily have that artifact. You know, you don't have something like a watch or a painting that you can 
giveaway that's directly related to, say, a civic project that, that's looking to raise money. So there are different considerations around the perks. And you know, in some cases, there might not even be perks. But So it's different in how it entices people to give. But there also needs to be a different set of considerations that go above and beyond what Kickstarter uh, and its cohorts do around the type of organization that it can, can bless things. You know, if they have, for example, uh, hypothetically, it's a city and they have tax credits that they can issue. Now, you need to get into a, a whole other set of paperwork and documents uh, related to, you know, the legalities of of offering something like that on a platform. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a couple of ways that it varies, and then it's also a slightly different appeal, you know, because with with Neighborly, what we're really trying to build is a way for people and companies and institutions to invest in the civic projects and the places that they want to get behind. Uh, so the crowd in in the case of civic projects can be slightly different because people use cities, but also businesses use cities and, and institutions use cities. So our definition of a crowd is not just individuals. You know, in civic crowdfunding, in our model of civic crowdfunding, we're trying to push that you know, companies and institutions ought to have a chance to contribute as well. Mm -hmm. So there's a third uh, way it varies. I'm sure there are others. Right. So you can have the... Well, right. You can also have any other institution. I mean, basically, if the local hospital or the local library, assuming the library is not part of the government structure, I mean, these would be institutions that also could participate as well as the individuals and the businesses, right? Exactly. Or are government would, yeah. agencies allowed to participate? Well, yeah. There's, they, if they're not, they should be. Now, there are some cases uh, where, you know, it's possible that, you know, maybe there's a matching program. Uh, and we have to look at civic crowdfunding in, in terms of Usually, there's very large budget at stake uh, for for larger scale community things, and we have to, you know, right away admit that crowdfunding is not going to completely fund like you know something huge like a streetcar, for example. But if it's approached correctly, it can it can become a really good complementary tool. It can add a little bit to it and you know help to to fill a funding gap, um, and it can help. You know, a government or institutions that are vested in the project to say, you know, if you if you all contribute X Y Z, then we'll match it. You know, so, and this is something that like the the Kickstarter is just you know, it's more or less an all or none proposition that, you know, it's the money that's raised directly through the system that counts. So, there's another difference. Right. Okay. So it's basically matching what's raised as one, just sort of one, another variation, uh, huh, on the theme. So let's talk about putting a project together. How would so someone wakes up one day, you know, you got these people together, said, okay, we've got a, a need for broadband in, in our community, and we figure that it would cost, um, I don't know, call it. Five thousand dollars, or I'll use I'll use an EC fiber, which is out of Vermont, uh, uh, scenario. In that particular case, EC fiber or that community decide, okay, the total cost of the network is going to be twelve million. We, but if we can raise 
three million of that, basically for twenty five percent of the cost, we can build enough of the network to encourage people to buy enough subscriptions and, and invest in the network to build out the rest of it. So the goal is three million dollars. And for kicks we'll say the city or a city might say, Okay, well if you raise three million, uh, we will match it with a million. Okay, so that's the scenario. Mm-hmm. Now, how would you set up a neighborly project to go after something in that scenario? Well, it would start with uh, partnering with the right entity. So, you know, on neighborly, another difference is we we don't allow citizens to just come in and, and put up a project. It has to be through a, some type of organization that's, you know, authorized to represent a community of some sort. So it could be the city itself or a neighborhood organization or it can be a civic-minded institution that's there for that purpose. Um, and then we would sit down with them and try to figure out, you know, what what types of things are you able to offer up as sort of uh, chips, you know, the bargaining chips to entice people to to put in. And then, you know, what are the mechanics of of this match? You know, what's what are the conditions, you know, by which we meet the match? What happens to money if, you know, the those conditions aren't met, and uh, how long do we have to do this, so on and so forth. And from there, it would be just a matter of configuring the project in the system and pressing go, and then letting, you know, helping with this, you know, expecting the organization to really push through the social networks, through their traditional networks, and so forth. And uh, that would constitute the campaign. Mm-hmm. Now, who owns the network in this in this scenario? That's a you know that's a really good question. It's I think it's going to depend on you know the the particular project, and it's something that you know we need to figure out a good model that can be replicated. And I think that there is such a model that's that's emerging. Uh, I just had I had a conversation with the the leader of this foundation last week. They're called Free Network Foundation. Uh, Isaac Wilder. He's he has this model he's pushing that uh, is basically his his goal is to get uh, you know internet infrastructures that are owned by the people that are deployed into communities that can be highly rep- replicable. Uh, that you know it, it doesn't take a specific configuration. Um, after the first one's deployed, it doesn't take very long to be able to deploy the next one and so forth. But, um, and some of this technical goes well above my head. I'm going to attempt to recount this because it, it answers your question of, of who owns it. Mm-hmm. In the end, ultimately, it's whatever the entity that lists the project for neighborly would be, you know, assume control of it. Now they might have an operator, you know, that they contract or so forth to make sure that everything works right. But in the case of neighborly, what we would hope to find is uh, existing organizations that represent neighborhoods, for example. Like a uh, a not for profit community organization or a development corporation or something of that nature, and the model from Free Network Foundation is basically to um, implement you know a, a large aspect of it is what's it called Freedom Tower, and then deploy Freedom Nodes to specific buildings, and then another piece of equipment inside of some buildings. And together that group of equipment constitutes the network. And so it's a, basically the mesh and with it, you know, you can in this neighborly model, 
the network should be owned, quote unquote, by the organization that will oversee it. But the equipment itself, maybe that's part of like the the sale. Like maybe you sell the the thing that goes inside of the building that repeats the signal. Mm-hmm. Maybe that becomes part of the basis of the fundraising. So it's something. Your question is one that definitely needs to be answered, and I might have a different answer for each project. But the Isaac Wilder from Freedom from Free Network Foundation definitely helped me to better understand one model of how that might work. Mm-hmm. So in some respects, this is a work in progress, and as it pertains to uh, broadband specifically. I mean, though it sounds like. Oh, yeah. When did you start your company? Uh, well, the idea was came about in early spring of 2012, but it's only been up and running as a system in like a basically an open testing phase for now for about a month. Okay, so we're all learning together about really all aspects yeah, of civic we are. <laughs> broadband in itself would just be an offshoot of the learning process because I would just be learning about one particular category, but it seems like there is enough um, structure in place, an operational structure in place on your side that it's viable for people to say, hey, I want to be a part of that. And yes, it is a learning process, uh, but it, you know, it's worth making the effort to see how it goes, especially when you consider places such as um, uh, the, the communities in Vermont that are using uh yeah. their their approach you know which is is, is um offering people uh promissory notes uh, in other cases people are offering stocks and i mean people are experimenting in a number of ways the common denominator seems to be the community is the investor in the network and and what neighborly is doing is facilitating a community as investor type of scenario exactly. yeah okay um, how do you think this will play out? You know, what's what's your vision behind this for broadband specifically? Well, either for broadband or for just the whole idea of civic fundraising. Yeah, for broadband specifically, there there's tremendous hope to know that you know, in, in at some point, you know, we might be able to figure out how to get this to provide um, access for all to places that maybe don't have it. You know yet, or better access or more affordable access to places that have it, but they don't have so many uh, good options for you know choosing. They can go with a hundred and something dollar a month package uh, deal that gets them you know what I've been told is not so good compared to you know a, a large number of other digitally advanced countries. They can pay uh, quite a bit of money for not a whole lot of service, basically. So this could be a means of also, you know, stimulating competition uh, in such areas that there's already coverage, bringing coverage to areas that don't yet have it, and then also, um, I think, bringing another option as far as, you know, it's just I think it's towards looking at broadband as infrastructure. As something that the community ought to invest in, and with this approach of putting it into the hands of, like, say, a neighborhood organization, I think that you, you know, you're not going to get a whole city at once wired up in that way, but you might be able to, you know, avoid some of the issues that came about with the uh, the early uh, municipal wireless projects that sometimes ended in lawsuits because of the you know, ISPs saying crying foul that a city offering that is basically taking 
the basis of their competition. Mm -hmm. uh, for better or for worse. I, just, I think that this is just another way of bringing an option. And if you look at it as something that, if, if for example, hypothetically, you had as a set of perks, you know, in an area where a company would be paying, I don't know, $1,000 a month for its internet, uh, which is not uncommon in the area of Kansas City we're in for a company of 50 or more to have a $1,000 a month connection. If they could either, you know, maybe reduce that to 500 a month and then bring in this supplementary system uh, that they, you know, maybe put in $1,000 up front and get a whole year's worth or, you know, something of that nature, then I think there's a good value proposition for, for that kind of involvement. And then, you know, it's the, what happens to areas that have wireless access outside uh, in the public spaces, it's, it's pretty well understood at this point that, you know, you invigorate the public spaces and you open up possibilities. So I think it's a good uh, economic development tool for communities. It's a good business move in some cases for a community organization. And it's something that we, we have a great hope that it will become, you know, a way of bringing Internet to better Internet to more folks. Mm -hmm. Now, you were involved with the mayor's uh, innovation team, which is basically the Google Fiber call it by city uh planning team um i'm, I'm paraphrasing paraphrasing but we had we had the two co-chairs of that actually on the show a week before last Mike and, and Ray. yes yeah yeah so um so now so what what kinds of discussions happened during that planning process that you know maybe strengthen your belief in the crowdfunding as a viable op you know as a viable option in your case or yeah. in Kansas City's case it would be a supplement as opposed to the main deal because like I said Google is funding the the, the main network but where, what well, role yeah. does does crowdfunding have in in Kansas City but also what insights did you pick up on how crowdfunding can work in other communities? Well, the biggest part of validating a need for something like a, a neighborly for helping to fund these things was the question that happened, you know, or the statement that happened more often than not when it came to a new idea. And it was, it went along the lines of, if we had the money to do this, and that seemed to be a, a common theme, or an idea would be proposed for, you know, how you would bring, say, you know, the broadband to an area of town where there's not a lot of access that really needs the access, um, there would be an idea or two, and it would be incredible ideas, and then we'd come back to the next meeting and, you know, what happened with that idea? Well, you know, it turns out it costs, you know, 20 grand or something like that. Mm -hmm. So th just the fact that the money is the recurring theme of uh, it's a necessity for getting these things done, it, I think it was validation for, for the neighborly model. But also, um, you know, hearing over and over and over again from Google that, uh, you know, they're going to be wiring up uh, the schools and the, the institutions in the neighborhoods that get the Google Fiber um, was just, I mean, it, it's really amazing to think about that. But that will leave a couple of places uh, in town that don't have, you know, they couldn't do all of them or they couldn't do the areas outside of KC, Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri proper. So now there's going to be sort of like a tilting, you know, in, in favor of those two cities. And so maybe the cities around them will also want to, to bring in their own type of infrastructure. Uh, so there's going to be, I think, once Google shows you what 
1,000 megabit a second connection can do, that other communities will want similar things, and maybe there's a role, maybe there's part of part of that role uh, is for crowdfunding to help facilitate. Um, and then lastly, you know, Google's made it clear that at least for the foreseeable future, they're doing homes. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're not they're not intending at the moment to do businesses. Uh, and nothing in what they've done so far has either confirmed or denied that there will be a wireless component. And you know, some people have, I haven't looked into it myself, but some people have said that you know they started to look through some of the early language that's coming out of it, and it is not going to allow for like a a limited use, like a, a wireless relay. It, say, if you put up a, one at your house that's powerful enough to to you know light up the sidewalk and the four or five houses next door, that that might be in violation of their terms. Mm -hmm. um, and then, as far as using it for like enlivening public spaces, there's, uh, to my knowledge, at this time, there's not any plan for uh, Google Fiber to to make that possible. And I could be completely wrong, but what I'm imagining is people are going to see how this uh, how amazing this new pipe is into their home. And they're going to start uh, wanting it in other contexts. And Google Fiber is not going to provide it in all those other contexts. So, you know, I think maybe from those meetings, the, the two things that were taken most were one, you need money to do these really cool, interesting community undertakings. And two, there's going to be a gap between what Google Fiber, what people hope Google Fiber can do and what it will actually do. So. Mm -hmm. Both of those things together are a basis for you know exploring community-led, community-owned, community-driven broadband projects. Right now, there now one of the things, for example, you know, thought came to me in um, oh, what is it? Uh, one of the options is that um, you can, for just paying the price of installation, three hundred dollar price for installation, get Google Fiber. Uh, at oh what is it uh, five megs down one meg up right and people looked at that and said okay well that might be a good digital inclusion program then yep. you know the pushback says well you know what if people can't afford the three hundred dollars and you know we counter with well it's only twenty five dollars a month uh, you know personally I think that that you know people should pay something for their um, you know, for their for their access, or at least for the capability, would it not make sense? Or you know, maybe I should maybe I should, let me rephrase this. Would it make sense to consider a neighborly project for a community to pursue to pay for to raise money to pay for uh, installation within their their community? So you know, you get into a particular area, you know, a low-income area, and they said, okay, well, let's do it this way. Let's use neighborly to raise the money for that installation. So people who can from the community can still contribute, but maybe you, you know, you, you get some other outside entities or a nonprofit group or whatever yep. that comes in and says, okay, we'll we'll match it, right? So if we get you know a hundred homes that that uh you know contribute via neighborly you know we'll match them dollar for dollar so maybe they'll put in 25 a month and and for 10 months and what is that 250 bucks and this nonprofit picks up the remainder or any kind of variation but you see where I'm going with this it's like looking uh -huh. at 
you know, is that is that viable, doable? What do you think? It's it's viable, and and I'm so glad that you you brought this up because we're hoping uh, to put something like that together uh, through a group in town that's run by uh, Aaron Deacon. He runs a group uh, called Give Us a Gig. It's an initiative that he's worked tirelessly, you know, for a year or more now to go door to door basically and to have community meetings and communities and talk about why broadband is important and to get people, you know, fired up about getting uh, Google Fiber when uh, now, now that it's, uh, they're starting to take basically what the equivalent of votes among neighborhoods or what they're calling fiberhoods. And, you know, Aaron and, and the folks that have been helping him with that undertaking have, you know, raised considerable interest in, and also they've helped people to understand why it's important and so forth. Now that you know Google's announced that they charge you know the three hundred dollar connection fee, also there's it, it costs money to vote. Um, if you look at their website oh, yeah, it's for dollars, it, right? It's ten bucks. You know, it's not a lot of money um, for you know at the end of the day. Well, I guess that's relative to who you are, but for me right now, that's a lot of money. But mm-hmm. if you have uh, you know a, a mechanism that you could say. Somebody in a neighborhood, whether it's a person that happens to have done okay for themselves or a foundation like you said, company, something like that, that they could go on and pre-fund, you know, the votes for, you know, X number of their other neighbors, all of a sudden, you know, that's exactly why neighborly exists and, you know, you're helping these neighborhoods that might not, you know, bring that money into the voting system themselves um, otherwise to to get access because they're prioritizing by the votes. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense what they're doing, but it does it does create you know it does sort of in some ways reinforce like a chasm between uh, the so-called digital divide of, of people that have and have not. Um, I think that you know if there's a group like Give Us a Gig and they're out door to door and at community meetings anyway, and if you given them a small bucket of money from neighbors to go out and to say, okay, well, I can sign up 50 votes in this on the street because of that. Then all of a sudden it, it seems to work incredibly well. Right. So, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's, <laughs> we just, you know, this, it was in the back of our minds, and then it seemed like a crazy idea that should be dismissed because, you know, how on earth would you administer it? But then, you know, this Give Us a Gig initiative, it, it, it's already doing something very similar. So mm-hmm. it, it could make sense, uh, and we hope to actually get it done sometime in the next couple of weeks. Right, okay, that that definitely makes sense. Now let's look at a couple of other aspects of broadband. I mean, there's um, there's obviously paying for the infrastructure, which is what, you, what you're looking at now um, that Google is doing. But if I break down, you know, your typical broadband project, you have – the uh, needs assessment exercise. You know, if you're going to hire a consultant to do uh, needs assessment, okay, that's a chunk of change. If you are going to develop a broadband plan and the engineering plan and so forth, you know, these are all consulting fees. Right. Could those could could neighborly be used to raise money to address those? Yeah, those? that should be part of the campaign. Okay. You know, there's the hardware cost. Okay, but then what are you really funding? Actually, you're funding the people, exactly like you said. Mm-hmm. Is the, there's the studies up front. Um, there's the design of the implementation. And then there's the ongoing. Like, um, you know, in the case of a free network foundation's model, 
there's a piece of hardware that sits on roofs and it you know bounces signals back and forth to other roofs. Uh, what about a lightning storm? Or I don't know, maybe lightning doesn't affect it, but a really strong wind does. Or a pigeon decides, hey, that's a really good place for a nest or whatever, you know. So there needs to be like a, a probably the most important part at the end of the day, because the technology is basically commoditized, is to have competent people that that are able to, you know, do the upfront planning that's required, and then to do the ongoing uh, maintenance and and uh, operational stuff that you know go above and beyond the hardware itself. Mm -hmm. That should prove um, that should prove interesting. I think that uh, and it opens up some you know additional possibilities. Uh, it addresses the fact that uh, you know every time. In fact, I got a call uh, just a couple days ago. Uh, someone was calling saying, you know, our our community is trying to figure out you know answers to these questions. Who can we turn to? And as we talked, you know, it become it became you know sort of reinforced to me this whole thing that. Um, you know, many communities face this issue. You know, what do we need to do? How do we need to do it? There are just a lot of costs not associated with the physical infrastructure just mm -hmm. to get the idea off and formulated and crystallized and getting people moving toward the big goal. Uh, you know, there is the approach of, you know, can we build part of a network and use that almost as a test case to show that, you know, number one, what can be done, you know, but also verify what the costs will be, verify what the benefits will be. You know, and again, it's not the main deal, it's not the main network, but there are all these kinds of costs that could be holding communities back. Now you're saying, hey, we can we can use this platform, we can use this approach to raise that kind of money. Right. Makes sense? Okay. Yes, it does. And that's where I think uh there's a couple of emerging models that are attempting to try to standardize the deployments as much as they can, you know, knowing that it's going to be different in every place because of building heights and trees. And I'm sure there are a million other variables that would blow my mind if I knew they were actually variables. But, you know, I, you mentioned a group in Vermont of communities uh, doing this. I'm not sure, is that being led by a, a particular group or is it just their sort of... Uh, self-assembling networks. They, okay, so the cities or the townships got together and created okay. a non-profit or a not-for-profit corp uh, corporation. Right. And then that corporation has its guidelines and bylaws and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And the board of the, of the corporation are responsible for hiring, you know, the actual who, you know, who builds a network type of thing. But the city, right. the city governments don't have a direct relationship with that corporation, but they right. but the communities themselves have have elected the people to be on uh yeah. the, the the board, okay? And so that's kind of how they have uh approached their particular project. Okay, so that and then a model like the the free network foundation of doing basically bundling the technology as much as possible and not just the technology but also like a game plan uh, mm -hmm. like the uh, Isaac and they sit there documenting like here's here's what you do when you go to set up the tower and here's all this stuff so that the knowledge is it becomes he's trying to get it to be like basically open source uh, hardware and software you know 
that uh, the knowledge of how to get this done is something that you know can be replicated. And if you can do that um, in a couple of test markets, like you were saying, and, and prove that the idea works, and then allow uh, an organization like Free Network or something similar to it to to go and to help make you know not one of these things, but say 500 ready-made kits. Then all of a sudden, like the cost of, of getting these things implemented um, goes it plummets, and then you can focus as much as possible on the funding, the fundraising for the human aspect, mm -hmm. which is you know as far as I can tell, it's, it's a job. It's at least one job, you know, for for a city, right? Uh, of worth of neighborhoods that have these things. I don't know how how that works out in the end, but it's something that. If you do, if you continue down and, and carry this out a couple of extra steps, not to its conclusion, but you know if you start to imagine the next couple of chess moves, it all of a sudden becomes clear that what you're looking at is like uh, neighborhoods are there's going to be a kit of parts basically mm -hmm. and a, and a playbook and to deploy these things so that it becomes about the people, all about the people. Now just to sort of a deviate for a half a second here. Um, what is the how would you describe the difference between crowdfunding and crowdsourcing? Because what's starting to happen is that people are hearing both terms and they're confusing them, like in their daily conversation. Sure. Not so much in newspaper articles. I mean, they're obviously they're clear they're they're talking about one or the other, but in conversation, sure. someone will use one when I know they mean the other. How would you describe the difference for the layperson? Okay, as near as I can tell, the term crowdsourcing was coined uh, fairly recently in a Wired article. And I could be wrong about that. I forget the name of the person, but he's, I think, since made a, a career based on the idea of crowdsourcing. Um, and then crowdfunding is, in, in my understanding of it, a subset of crowdsourcing. Okay. That, uh, you know, if you were talking about, you know, sourcing to the crowd in the context of what the author originally wrote about, it was about companies uh, sending out tasks to consumers or customers or to random people all over the globe. Uh, especially over the internet, especially through models like uh, Amazon's Mechanical Turk, <laughs> you know, go on and get you know five thousand people to fill out a survey for a few pennies each or whatever. Um, the crowdfunding was just sort of an extension, a subset of the overall crowdsourcing. They said, okay, instead of like you, you know, putting time into such a thing or thought or, or effort or whatever, you just put money into it, and so that. In my mind, crowdfunding is just a direct subset of the of the broader term of sourcing. But now that you mention it, there are there's possibilities that you have to step back and say, you know, it's not just about the money in this case. In fact, it, money is just one small, however critical component. The people ultimately become the most important thing. And what you see is if you get people to put in on initiatives like this, they all of a sudden they begin to feel invested in them. Right? If you put in five dollars on a thing, then you know maybe it was a five thousand dollars thing, but you feel like a part owner, and all of a sudden you know you're more you're more inclined, and you're more compelled to to help out or to to do another task, you know, because you know even if you're not like an equity shareholder in this thing, you're still wanting to protect your your investment, however psychological that may be, you know. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, when you talk about this becoming about people and needing to to recognize that and the difference between the two, I'd say that one of the biggest advantages of getting somebody to put into a crowdfunding project is that you ultimately are able to turn back to a lot of them to say, 
for crowdsourcing efforts, like volunteering to get the thing done, they become much more interested in. Hmm. I uh, I would have to say that I agree with that. In fact, that is one of the reasons why I get a little, um, you know, concerned about the discussion about you know, do we give something to uh, a low-income community totally for free, or do we have them pay, you know, $10, or do we break up, you know, the $300 into $25 a month? Now, I understand that, you know, when you're on a tight budget, Every one of those dollars that you have as a as a human being working and all the rest of it matters. On the flip side, I I also feel like based on you know what my grandmother told me all, all while I was growing up, you know if you give something to people for nothing, they don't appreciate it. Or right. the corollary of that is if you make people pay something, even if it's a buck, you know even right. if it's just ten bucks. They are invested because they at least put something in it, and obviously, the less they have, you know, the more that dollar means. You know, to Donald Trump, a dollar is definitely not going to matter. <laughs> you know, to sure. some folks that haven't been working for a couple of months, every dollar counts. But if they do that, then they're like the likelihood that they will, you know, spend more time, extra time, to learn about the technology, to learn how to make broadband, you know, improve their ability to get a job or to advance in the job they already have. You know, their engagement in the broadband effort is going to rise dramatically if they have some skin in the game. Yes. So, yeah, so it's not that far off yeah. the path. Okay. Now you just raised a very interesting point. If if, if we do, for example, do that uh, idea that you had about, you know, helping to pay for some of those connections on behalf of others in a in a community, then it might be better to actually match, you know, and say, well, dramatically reduce the cost that you can't make it free or it's mm -hmm. just something that you know doesn't mean anything to anybody. Hmm. Does that make sense that yep. you're saying, uh, you know, the $300 connection fee or the $10 vote or whatever, if you match, maybe that's a better model. Right. So it's basically, you know, you, you, you're trying to do this balance thing. You know, you're trying to do this balance thing because I think my my sort of longer-term contention has been, you know, a lot of the government programs um, are too much based on the give-it-away versus the, the partnership aspect like you're describing. You know, we will match this. If you do this, then X. You know, we'll be you know, you'll you'll get X. Uh I think in Philadelphia, Wireless Philadelphia, which was the non profit created to support the wireless network before Earthlink backed out. Um but that evolved into a project of going where the, the people at Wireless Philadelphia went to a lot of non-profit entities and says, you know, we want to get people, say it, it's a drug rehab program. Okay, we want to get your folks um, on the broadband so that they can make something of their lives. They can also maybe access services from you without having to travel to your location. So the part of the requirements for getting free wireless is that they've got to take X or Y course. They have to complete certain certification training. They have to do, you know, X number of job interviews. In other words, they created creatively. You know, they were very creative about um, coming up with these different scenarios in which, yes, you gave something away because people didn't have money, but you made them do something to earn that um, that benefit. 
Right. Now, let's uh, since we're talking about sort of a bigger picture, um, and it all still comes back to the broadband discussion, but, you know, you did this thesis on um, using web technologies for civic engagement. Uh, without, you know, re- re-delivering your thesis, what was what was the core premise behind this? What, what was your, you know, I don't know, key finding at the end of this exercise? That is, the, it is an obvious conclusion. <laughs> Uh, it was basically just asking whether or not there was uh, value in in turning to the internet in places that you know the people had only had like access to a physical town hall meeting as their primary means of interacting with their government for for centuries. You know, and the answer, the big thing was obviously yes, it is, but but very critically, it had to be as a complement and not a substitute for those uh, traditional ways of, of governance and engagement. That it could never become something. Well, as long as um, you know inclusion is an issue, and the so-called digital divide uh, and you know unequal access were issues, they could never be viewed or treated as a full-out substitute for the traditional ways of governance and engagement. So you'd have to have uh, you know, your online sort of discussions through you know, mechanisms like MindMixer or Neighborland. Uh, and then you'd also have to have those in conjunction with the physical, the face-to-face meetings. And you, for the example of public notices, you know, it could not replace the public notice in the newspaper until there were no more newspaper readers, right? Ah, um, right. Mm-hmm. So it's basically saying that it's in a weird transition that it might someday become the basis of of collective decision making on behalf of governments, and that governments are you know facing budget shortfalls, and these tools are uh, attractive because they offer the promise of you know uh, engagement at scale uh, with lower per user cost, so to speak, but in reality they're actually adding cost because until we can figure out, you know, how to get everybody wired up. Otherwise it's uh, it's not a democracy. Right. Yeah. Um in fact later this week we're gonna have on the show former commissioner um Michael Copps and he made a big um you know part of his career with the FCC as commissioner, engaging people on this issue of uh, originating content, uh, maintaining some sort of control at a community level over the media and the media distribution process. And the Internet, if nothing else, has definitely become you know, a major outlet or a major channel for getting people to, you know, to connect with the media or getting media, media to connect with people. And I think his big thing is, you know, we need to do more to get people engaged. And then when you talk about broadband, isn't really broadband about, you know, one of its missions about getting people engaged with the media, however you define media, whether it's TV, print, whatever, whatever? Yeah. It's definitely another channel. And but the Internet overall, it seems to be weaving itself into all those other channels. And not completely uh, taking them over or replacing them, but changing them. Mm-hmm. You know that it's, you know, it's not that it's not that uh, like a, a newspaper is dead. It's just it's in a different shape for some people. Right. It's in a it's in a the form of a 
you know, a 10-inch diagonal glass and silicone and rubber tablet, you know, rather than, you know, a piece of paper for some people. So, you know, there's this transition going on and as far as like uh, government messaging, the internet offers a very, very powerful um, multi-way messaging system. Um, and that's very powerful and very handy for engagement. But it needs to be, you know, regarded as not a full-on substitute for how things have been done for years. Right. And we have definitely gotten into a rut in some respect. Well, then bringing it back to then the discussion of crowdfunding, doesn't this point to maybe that there should be an imperative among, you know, felt that we really need to get behind crowdfunding because crowdfunding for this media channel is definitely in our best interest. So it's not even just about do we get, you know, access to the Olympics online, but, you know, the core of our democracy, the core of our ability to make better political decisions uh, comes from the technology. And so if that is our goal, right, because everybody that promotes broadband always promotes it with a goal of, you know, some level of civic engagement, some level of st uh, citizens' involvement with their business, uh, their commercial world, as well as their, you know, personal and their political world, you know, well, so if we're saying that, you know, okay, great, all of these things are important, then should we not be looking at creative ways of funding because right. it's clear the government can't fund all of this stuff? Then maybe they shouldn't fund all of this stuff. Right. That brings up a, a number of really good points and, and a good idea about how to introduce, you know, softwares and, and hardware that help increase engagement. Um, using digital mechanisms uh, without it becoming a, a full-on addition to the budget, another item on another line item on an already taxed budget. So we got to step back for a second and take a, a devil's advocate's position on this for a second mm -hmm. and say, crowdfunding for civic purposes already exists, and this is the argument that I get, you know, most frequently, and it's a good argument. It already exists. It's called taxes. I already pay my taxes, so why would I pay additional for this? And to them, I would say, you know, you pay your taxes, and they go into general buckets, and you have, other than at the voting booth, you have very little control over where it ultimately ends up. In cases like uh, these, what we're talking about, helping the crowdfund, you know, you, it's entirely up to you. Even if all of your neighbors vote with their dollars to have something done, you're not um, automatically obligated to vote with your dollars. So in a way, it's kind of um, a little bit pure of a democracy because it's basically saying, okay, you want to be a capitalist construct, you want to be a democratic construct, well, here's a mechanism that will allow for both of those things. You vote with your dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you, if you want the service, then you want the service, and you'll go on and you'll help to pay for it. Um, the danger of that is that you have to do it in a way that it does not um, become the only means of, of bringing about new government initiatives. Mm -hmm. But for ed what are perceived as sort of outlandish or edge case initiatives that 
might bring about real positive lasting change, like a community broadband project that would have a very hard time passing as a tax matter and might become the subject of a lawsuit, you know, if it, if it, if it is a city-led effort, um, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to say, you know, the city is broke. It doesn't have the money to do this, um, and nor should it, based on you know the track record of, of cities trying to to run these things themselves. Um, so here's an alternative model. And the funny part is that if you do something like a crowdfund, uh, a broadband initiative for uh, a neighborhood or something to that effect, and you get it done, and you increase the access for it. And all of a sudden, the people in that neighborhood are connected, you know, at, at really, really good speeds, and they don't pay an arm and a leg for those speeds. Then, at some point, you're actually, you know, sowing the seeds of of economic growth, mm -hmm. uh, something that might actually put back into the tax base that can fund bigger and better things. So now, so, um, no, I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. I'm, <laughs> okay, we've got just, uh, I guess we got a little bit over uh, six minutes or so left. Um, if the initiator of the project is either a city government, local government, or it's a non-profit, the foundation or what have you, if someone contributes to that fund, to that process, is that then tax deductible? In some cases, yes. Um it depends on the project and on neighborly. That's one of the key things that we'll be doing in the coming months as we continue to develop the software. But there are times when uh, the answer is yes and times when the answer is no. And they need to be distinct so that somebody that's interested in, you know, say, contributing but they want a tax break, um, there will be opportunities for the project owners to say, well, this particular level, this option is tax deductible. Mm -hmm. Now, you have to... You have to navigate that around all the, you know, fine-grained requirements for what constitutes constitutes a, a deduction and value received in exchange for the contribution and so forth. Um, and that's going to be different on a project-by-project -project basis, for not only from what type of entity lists it, but also what the person receives in return or the company or institution. Um, but in the case of, say, you know, uh, a not-for-profit or neighborhood organization listing something along those lines uh, that is set up and is recognized by the treasury to be a uh, you know a designated not-for-profit entity, then you know as long as the person isn't receiving something of, of direct value, then there's a chance for it to be a tax deduction, mm -hmm. which is very compelling. It's it's very compelling fuel for. That getting around that idea, the, the center's idea of this being another tax. You know, in some cases, you're never asked, you're never forced to contribute to something, um, and then in some cases, you can even take it off of your taxes. Wow! So it's kind of, you know, and that's out to being, you know, a very powerful uh, mechanism for democratic uh, budgeting. This will prove interesting as this unfolds. So with yeah. our time remaining, uh, with our four minutes left, is are there one or two things that you would advise to say, you know, step one, step two, you know, succinctly, but to, to move a project like this forward? I'm sorry, you cut out for a second. Can you oh. repeat that question? You got, uh, can, can you give us one or maybe two first steps 
to move forward with a crowdfunding project if it, as it relates to broadband? What would you advise? We, we're in the creative phase, so uh, get creative and send suggestions to your show. <laughs> Uh, send suggestions <laughs> to you or send suggestions to Neighborly about, hey, what if you did this? Because it's honestly, it's still in the idea phase. Mm -hmm. And we're going to take some steps you know, in the coming weeks to, to start dipping the toes in, in the crowdfunding broadband waters. And we hope someday that Neighborly has a category called technology that has a, a significant uh, portion of that category is dedicated to community broadband undertakings. And we're going to start and we're going to make mistakes, and we're going to not nail the opportunity because we don't know. You know, it's it's kind of experimental at this point. So, the ideas and the feedback are absolutely the steps that are needed right now. Hmm. And then from there, it's just uh, you know, if you have something and you think you can give give it legs, then uh, you know, get in touch with you or go on. You know, there's a link in the footer of Neighborly. I have an idea for a project. We've got about a dozen projects from around the country right now uh, that we're investigating, and you know, ask or propose a project. You know, so that's good. And uh, you know, I appreciate the shout out. There's also a link to Neighborly in the description for uh, this uh, for this show. So people definitely should send ideas. We should definitely tap into the creative nature of this beast and make some stuff happen because it's a good it's a good opening. It's a good opportunity. And I know that you know people get really dismayed. Oh, it costs a lot of money. We don't have money. What are we yeah. going to do? And they wring their hands. Time for hand wringing is over. <laughs> the time yeah. for wringing our That's hands right. and wondering where we're going. It's that we got to just step up. And use some creativity, and you know, expand some envelopes, think outside of some boxes here, and really figure out how to make this stuff work. In other words, rewrite the chapter. People got to take responsibility for rewriting the chapter of their community's broadband effort. And I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> Love that. But this has oh. been a great interview, and uh, you know, I'm glad to see you know this is going on. I mean, it's like one more great thing coming out of Kansas City, along with you know the Google Fiber project itself. And so I'm just, you know, I'm very pleased to have you uh, on the show. I'm very pleased to have your insights, you know, that we're going to share, that we have shared with our audience. So, you know, keep up the good work, keep up the creativity, and keep us posted. I mean, you know, let me know how things progress with this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us on. No worries. And I want to thank our audience for being with us today, uh, another another great audience. Um, I also want to thank, we have a new sponsor this month, Team Fischl. Uh We'll be hearing more about them as the month goes along, but they're our, our one of our show sponsors uh, for the month of um, August. So thank you to them uh, for making this show possible. We will be back uh, on Wednesday um, with our interview with former Commissioner Michael Copps, and that promises to be a humdinger because if you've ever read any of his stuff or you've seen some of his comments in public, uh, the commissioner, when he was commissioner, definitely laid it on the line. And now he no longer has that sort of you know responsibility to be within the the, the structure of the FCC and all of that. He can really speak his mind. I expect our show to be um, a, re a very awesome thing. So hopefully we'll see, hear all or see all you folks on on Wednesday. Have a great day. We'll talk again soon. Bye. Bye bye.